welcome to another episode of The Two Old Fogey Yogis. Your hosts each week are Swami Shokananda and Reverend Pram, who between us have nearly 100 years of living la vida integral yoga. And that's what makes us Two Old Fogey Yogis. <laughs> In this episode, we're going to start looking at some of yoga's foundational texts. We'll begin with the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali. And part of what we'll explore is the relationship between Hatha Yoga and Raja Yoga. Is there one? Well, keep listening. So I think some of the things that I've wanted to talk to you about involve foundational texts. I think in one of our episodes, we're going to talk about, you know, what's classically been called scripture. And I think we kind of settled on the term foundational text. And in one episode, we're talking about the Bhagavad Gita. And today I wanted to talk about the Yoga Sutras, pretty foundational text, uh, particularly sure. for, in, for integral yoga and yeah. and really for all classical yoga. Yes. I think you probably are aware that uh, Reverend Jagannath, who is one of our senior teachers and person who helped to co-found the integral yoga ministry, right. someone who has done one of the deepest dives around into the yoga sutras. So he has a, a new book out. It's called Inside Patanjali's Words. Mm-hmm. Kind of like encyclopedia meets dictionary meets manual for life mm, it's nice. kind of yeah it's a beautiful blend in which he's looking really deeply into each of the words used by patanjali now for people who don't know about the yoga sutras and patanjali you know patanjali was a historical figure there's a lot of misinformation <laughs> or yeah you know, a lot not known about him. So what do we know? We know that he probably did not invent the Yoga Sutras, right? He drew from standing tradition, Hindu tradition, as well as he was very influenced by Samkhya Yoga, which is essentially, it's a dualistic system, and that informs the Yoga Sutras. But these sutras were transmitted orally. They were succinct. The sutra is like a little thread that you unravel. And really, as Edwin Bryant, who I'm now studying the sutras with, and he's, he's a professor at Rutgers University, has done an extensive translation and commentary, actually considering different uh, scholars and yogis who have done called traditionally Karika, a commentary on the text. He's brought like, I don't know, six or so of them in to the study that he does. And then his book includes commentary on all the commentaries. And this was really, it's it's a huge book. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So this Yoga Sutras text you know, we think five or 6,000 years ago, basically what it did was he potentially like compiled the current knowledge, you know, that mm-hmm. he drew from the Upanishads, from the Gita and systematized yoga into these eight limbs, sometimes called Ashtanga yoga, not to be confused with. Patabi Joyce's Ashtanga Yoga, yeah. Yeah, which yeah. is a particular way of approaching Hatha Yoga, mm-hmm. Patanjali's Ashtanga Yoga, or Raja Yoga, the royal yoga path, eight limbs, and 
it's really a lot of what Gurudev sourced integral yoga in that, you know, it's foundational. So I have a similar understanding that uh, he compiled and systematized in a very beautiful way, the yogic understanding of the time. I don't think he's considered having invented something new so much. He was, he knew how to bring things together in a very clear way. Yeah. And so he just sets this whole system down. And I think what it, it's probably surprising to people is that it's not really about Hatha yoga. <laughs> yeah. I think two verses about Hatha yoga. Yeah. And so <laughs> most people think, oh, wait, yoga and foundational book of yoga. Oh, so that's going to be all these <laughs> yeah. and all that, you know, yeah. and it's interesting because Edwin Bryant calls the Hatha yoga piece postural yoga. Mm. I love that he makes a distinction. Hmm. So there's postural yoga and then there's the system, you know, the classical yoga system, which is comprised of these different limbs. And Hatha is a part of the system, but as more for cultivating a seat. In fact, that's exactly. how, yeah. you know, that, that's how Edwin defines the word asana. Right as seat, not a posture. He said the postures, they were already known, but they weren't seen as very important back, I guess, in the Upanishads, in some of those ancient texts, there were mentions of the- Asanas, yeah. Yeah, these asanas, mm -hmm. postures, but they weren't seen as very important until the later texts, which is the Hatha Yoga Pradipika. It's interesting that the Pradipika, uh, even there, there's only about- I think 10 or 12 asanas and two thirds of the book is about pranayama. Whoa. And, and the asana section is, it's almost like sutra form. It doesn't give much detail. Like all the, like we do now, if you read a, an asana book now, this very detailed thing about how everything has to be held that came much, much later. Yeah. And so what Edwin was talking about was that it was actually during the British takeover in India mm. and Indians were looking for an indigenous form of, you know, like exercise, physical mm. culture versus what the British were introducing mm. to these, you know, so-called, you know, backwards people. <laughs> Let's yes. bring in our British YMCA style exercise. And there was some rebellion, some Indian people, and we're talking about East Indian, uh, not uh, Native American Indian. Mm. So they really wanted something that was their own indigenous form. So they went back and looked and they're like, Oh, okay. Asana. Yeah. You know, how, how he traces his back was then T. Krishnamacharya, who right. was a teacher of Sri Desikachar, of... His Desikachar's dad, yeah. I think Iyengar, Krishnamacharya's nephew, yeah. And Batavi Joyce is the third person. Yeah. Indra Devi also studied with uh, Krishnamacharya, yeah. Right. It was apparently Krishnamacharya who put forward the system of this indigenous Hatha yoga. You know, it was like this time of like, they're trying to bring more nationalism and pride of India because of all, mm. you know, India historically with the invasion, the British, the Muslim people, the, they were just constantly <laughs> being mm. invaded and it's like, trying to figure out what's our own, mm. you know? So it was the Mysore Maharaja's vision 
to say, let's have our own style of exercise, yeah. you know, physical so, fitness. Yeah. Yeah. Physical fitness, physical culture. Yeah. And so he went to Krishnamacharya and said, can you develop some kind of a system that people can follow? Hmm. So he's, I guess, considered really the great grandfather of postural yoga. And then, like you said, Patabi Joyce, Iyengar, Desikachar, they brought their styles to the West. You know, Krishnamacharya didn't come to the West. Right. Iyengar, Desikachar, of course, more so Iyengar. Right. Anger is the biggest one. Yeah. Right. And, and the emphasis really went into postures and then they would, you know, they wove Patanjali in, uh, but it's interesting because, you know, in the 1960s, when we all two old fogey yogis were coming up, right. There was resistance to anything that sort of smacked of, you know, philosophy, spiritual components, God, all of this kind of stuff. So, I think that probably when yoga first came to the West in like late 50s, early 60s. Like Yogananda, some of the early people, yeah. Yeah, they weren't so much stressing the spiritual aspect. Well, Yogananda was, but like remember Richard Hittleman? Yeah, Jesse Stearns, I think, Jess Stearns. Uh, he had a few books, yeah. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, even Lilius when she started, there was uh, not a whole yeah. bunch of spirituality attached to it. Right, yeah. Even Gurdjieff said he had to be careful when he was chanting Om when he first came here. People thought that was strange. Yeah. So I think they just, you know, kind of gingerly, carefully wove some Patanjali in. But mm -hmm. yeah, so it's interesting that when we think about Hatha Yoga and these ancient sages discovering these postures thousands of years ago, it's actually within our lifetime or yeah. just our lifetime that this came about, you know, in the 1900s, it, you know, it came about. So it's not that ancient. That's right. Yeah. The Hatha Yoga Pradipika was 15th century classical manual on Hatha Yoga written by Swapmaramba. Yeah. But I thought that Edwin was saying that it was even more current. Well, certainly the teachers who brought forth Hatha Yoga was during 20th century. So it's not like it was hundreds of years ago yeah yeah we've been focusing in this class a bit on the first four sutras like edwin was really he was suggesting we memorize them and i've always sort of written off the first sutra you know it's like what's that doing there <laughs> now we're going to study yoga yeah uh, <laughs> duh. <laughs> why, do, why do you think i'm here yeah <laughs> <laughs> okay, so sutra number one, chapter one. So the book is divided into four sections. First sutra, Atha Yoga Anushasanam. Now is the time for yoga, or now I'm going to begin my study of yoga. So why? Right. Now it's a sutra, it's a sutra book, right? Why are they wasting words? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And yeah, there's only, and Edwin always makes a point of this, there's only 1,200 words in this book. Wow. Okay. Yeah. You, you can read it in, in a half hour. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you won't understand it, but you, <laughs> you can read it. <laughs> so, and that's why he says, don't bother reading. Edwin always says, don't bother reading it unless you're reading a commentary with it. Okay. 
So, of course, we have Gurudev's Swami Satchidananda's brilliant commentary. That's really the standard in the field for anyone who's, you know, training to be a yoga teacher. Because why? Yes, you can read Edwin's. That's like down the road, mm -hmm. way down the road. After you have like a lot of experience, understanding, practice, meditation under your belt. But to start, yeah. if you want to know what the heck this whole yoga thing is about, the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali, translation and commentary by Swami Satchidananda, that's the gold standard. Yeah, yeah. So when we look at the first sutra, which again, I said, you know, I just wrote off. Edwin made some interesting points, as does Jagannath in his new book, where he looks at each of the words. Right. So Edwin was saying, now, now is the time for yoga. Why now? Well, guess what? We have a human birth. Mm. And that's pretty much the only time we have an opportunity to make progress on the spiritual path consciously, with intention, with effort, with right effort, mm. and to make the most progress to psycho-spiritually evolve. So now is the time for yoga because now we have a human birth. Let's mm. not waste it. And he was saying there's 8,400,000 species. Mm. We've killed off a few million already, but <laughs> we still have 8 million. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, how many are left? How many are gonna be left? Um, so, so the 8,400,000 species, and within this, there's only one human species. Used and to be, used to be a bunch of others, right? Homo sapiens killed the rest of them off. Oh, yeah. Homo erectus and even Neanderthal was pretty intelligent. Sapiens were the smartest, yeah. So I guess we we survived. Yeah. Yeah. He was saying also that all non-human species, it's not like, okay, they don't count, they're lower, but they're just, they're not moral agents. They don't have this enough cognitive resources to contemplate right, wrong. And they are, they are burning karma, but only in the human form do we create good or bad karma and burn karma. So what do you mean? How are they burning karma then? I don't know. He didn't explain it, but he just yeah. said, I by fact that they're incarnating. Hmm. There's a certain amount of karma that is being burnt through through each incarnation in whatever form. But in the non-human forms, you're basically, what are you doing? You're eating, you're sleeping, you're mating, you're defending your territory, your food, your children. Everybody does that. Like all animals do that. Humans do that. We all eat, sleep, mate, defend. But animals don't read the Upanishads, learn about Atman. So... Now, this Atta, Atta Yoga Anushasanam, Atta means now. So the Atta part of this sutra is that now we put into practice what we are, what we've learned and are about to learn in the Yoga Sutras about this Atman, this self, as distinct from this, you know, little ego identification. Have you also heard that the, the now could refer to the fact that he's written a few other books on um, grammar, Sanskrit grammar, and now and then now refers to, I've done all that other scholarly work, and now we're going to talk about yoga. Have you, have you heard that also? Well, I have heard, and that also uh, Patanjali wrote texts on mathematics. Mm -hmm, right. Uh, but yes, it's true. Now the teachings of yoga right. are being presented, but... The now is the teach. There were teachings that were presented before in the Upanishads, 
but now they're being presented in a different way. So yeah, it's kind of amazing when you think, you know, this sutra that I thought, you know, just throw it out the window, who needs it, is actually, I mean, you can really unpack this. Yeah, it's like the first chapter of Bhagavad Gita. Why did they waste my time with all these names of warriors? Why do I didn't know all that? But there's a lot, there's a lot of very powerful information in that first chapter. It's worth reading. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And you know, traditionally in, in Buddhist texts too, they'll they'll start off with something. Um, if they want to really draw your attention, they'll go, Ama. Like, hey, pay attention. Mm, I like that. Yeah. And and Edwin was also saying that you know, there's all these different definitions. And I think Jagannath does this as well. Like, what is this thing now? It's this auspicious beginning. It's letting us know it's the beginning of an action, it's the beginning of an inquiry. Mm. into something we don't know something about, a calling to attention about something that we don't usually think about, right? Yeah. We, take, we take this world, this reality, who we are as a body-mind, that's who we think we are. And how many of us are going around, you know, really asking the question that Sri Ramana famously asked, <laughs> who am I? Who am I really? Yeah, yeah. And that's what the Yoga Sutras essentially is addressing. Yeah. It's so wonderful when that question actually arises and becomes more than just an intellectual question, but a real soul yearning. Yes. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting that, because you mentioned uh, Ramana, that he did talk about in, uh, enlightening the cow Lakshmi. I don't know if you heard, you know about that. He talked about that the cow Lakshmi, he was able to enlighten. Oh, yeah, uh, I heard something about that. <laughs> I mean, some people laugh at it. Uh, okay, yeah, sure. But uh, right. it's interesting. Why would he? Why would he say that? Uh, I would listen. I wouldn't put pa- anything past these great. I know, actors, yeah. Saints, avatars, you know. Yeah, they can do all sorts of fantastic feats. Maybe they can also do that. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah. and think about it, in the Yoga Sutras, one whole chapter, Patanjali. One right. one whole book of the four books of the Yoga Sutras really is giving an overview on what happens when you really perfect this practice Mm -hmm. of the inner yoga and all of the amazing siddhis or psychic powers that unfold. He and of course, Gurudev didn't encourage getting into all of that, but it's just like markers, you know, on the path. Even Patanjali, I don't think, he didn't didn't really encourage it. No. He just said, it's good to know yeah, good to know. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Just like markers on the path, or just, you know, don't get freaked out if suddenly, you know, mm-hmm. this and that kind of extra sensory perception thing starts happening. But at the same time, don't run after it. That's not that's not what you're here for. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So what is the the goal? The goal. Second second verse, right? Yeah. And so let's look at Patanjali's definition of yoga. And we should say that yoga, it's really not a full, you know, in the yoga sutras, it's not a philosophy. It's a method. It's a Mm. methodology primarily, Mm. you know, follow this. Here's where you'll get right. Mm. Here's what you will uncover. It's a psychology. Good enough used to say Raja yoga is psychology par excellence. And another term for the yoga sutra, the whole system of yoga that comes out of yoga sutras is Raja yoga, which is, you know, it's one of the branches of integral yoga and a main really important branch. So it's interesting that at that time when Patanjali was teaching, 
And again, he was transmit. He was just giving these oral teachings that his students then wrote down in these pith sutras that could be then easily memorized and passed on, you know, through the generations. That you have to kind of understand that there's this whole canon of philosophy behind the Yoga Sutras that Patanjali doesn't feel the need to include in the Yoga Sutras. That's why it's methodology. You have the background. Patanjali assumes you have studied the Upanishads, that you're grounded in Samkhya philosophy mm-hmm. and you're ready to roll. You know, you already know about Atman and Brahman. You study the Vedanta Sutra, but he's bringing something into focus. And what is it? He says in Sutra 1-2, Yoga Chitta Vritti Nirodaha. So there's many definitions of that. Many translations, yeah. Yeah, many translations. A jagana. he likes to talk about Vritti as a whirling. <laughs> it's the it's the thought waves, this the wave, yeah. Yeah, this kind of whirling movement of the mind. Uh chitta is the mind stuff. It's separate from consciousness, separate from Atman. Vrittis are what chitta does. So movement of thought is is just, it's the nature of the mind. It's what it does, mm-hmm. right? It's the surface level waves in the ocean of the mind, the fluctuations of thought. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. Edwin pointed out something really interesting that the root of vritti is revolve and it's the same root that's used for prana and the gunas a flowing a revolving a flowing so Mm. this whole chitta vritti narodaha is the stilling of the flowing the revolvings of the mind you're working with something that wants to vritti wants to move it's natural it's uh it's part of the um vayu the wind element Yes. It's, it's made to move. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's so interesting because in Buddhism, they talk so much about the winds and they have mm. all these practices that you do, particularly when you get into the Vajrayana practices, even when you get into dream yoga, preparing for sleep and dream yoga and lucid dreaming. It's all about like taming and calming the winds. Mm, interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In the Gita too, right? There's so much, isn't there like almost a whole chapter about the gunas? Oh yeah. There's a few chapters on the gunas. Yeah. The whole idea is to cultivate sattva or the pure, peaceful, balanced quality of nature over rajas, the active and sometimes frenetic. Mm-hmm movement and tamas the sort of lethargic dull the idea i guess with the chit of vritti naroda is that vrittis pretty much are usually ruled by rajas you know activity action movement right and we want to develop more sattvic quality of the mind's movement so it's not pulled towards you know, the kleshas, which that's another key teaching. The, the, they're the like the obscurations, the obstacles on the path. The, that's what holds us back, yeah. Yeah, so the desires and aversions and ignorance, egoism, fear, anxiety, all of those are part of the kleshas. And all of those can be subdued by working with the mind and through the yoga methodology to develop a more sattvic state of being, 
right? Yeah. State of mind, state of being. And it's interesting because <laughs> I heard some people say, well, it's like mindfulness. No, it's not mindfulness. In mindfulness, the mind is full, we witness it. But in yoga, the point is mind stillness. Mm -hmm. And what's the point of that? That's Sutra 3, right? Tada drastu swarupeya vastanam. Then the seer abides in its own nature. What's that nature? The nature is pure consciousness. Why is it pure? Nothing mixed in. Mm -hmm. So seer experiences its own true nature. That's the third sutra. Can we step back a moment? Yeah. Because it seems like there could be some self-effort in trying to move from tamas to rajas and rajas to sattva. Sattva isn't the goal. It's still it's still a guna of the mind. Right. But sattva can be, you can move beyond sattva with the right methodology, whereas without the sattva, it's really difficult. I think the, the question is that I'm coming up with in my mind is, okay, I'm doing something to become more sattvic. So I have more poise. I'm not making excuses for my mind to run all over the place. But uh, how do I move from sattva to Chittivriti Narodaha. What's the path to move from this more refined guna to transcending the gunas? Yeah. And is that something you can do with self-effort or not? <laughs> $64,000 question. <laughs> I think there are things I can do to become uh, a more balanced person and not so much controlled by restlessness and dullness. There's some things I can, I can work on. To move from that to thoughtlessness, what's your thoughts or experience with that that issue going from sattva to nishitvriti narodaha is that something worth, worth worth looking at or did you want to go in a different direction today no but i think it's really part of it is how is how you read the sutras like what you bring to the sutras mm-hmm. you know where are you coming from so like i said i'm studying with edwin bryant right now right and right. he comes to it with from a bhakti yoga perspective and tradition. Now he's trying to be neutral, you know, diplomatic and neutral about how he's approaching it, but he's so steeped in the bhakti tradition Mm. that the way he looks at it is why are you going to spend your time trying to do this? (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Just surrender to Krishna. You're all set. (laughs) So after all this, this huge study, this, this big book, yeah. Saying surrender to Krishna or however you see that divine. Now he uh, did. Wait, wait, wait. I should say, I mean, that's yeah. an oversimplification because yeah, yeah. he did say that, you know, I asked him the question. I said, right. you could do commentary on the Narada Bhakti, Bhakti Sutras on the Bhagavatam. Well, he has done the Bhagavatam Purana. He's done a commentary on why are you doing a commentary on the Yoga Sutras? Hmm. And he says, you know, it's a good question. <laughs> uh, he said, I actually was doing it because I think it was part of a dissertation he was working on or a university press had asked him to do it, whatever, whatever. Okay. But so at first it was like he was doing it, kind of going through the motions. But he said he did actually come out of it with a greater appreciation for meditation and the meditation methodology that Patanjali puts forth. He said that he felt like it did enrich his path. So I really think there is something for everyone in it. And what I think the genius of Swami Satchidananda was and is, is that he 
approached it from every way, from a truly integral perspective. So you can read the sutras and you can read his translation and commentary from a bhakti yoga perspective and be totally enriched by it. You can read it from an Advaita Vedanta Yana yoga perspective. He harmonizes it all. Now, I was working with Jagannath on his latest book, Inside Patanjali's Words. Jagannath does bring in some Buddhist and even Jain thought into looking at the sutras and particularly, you know, in depth to each word. Right. What I've seen is that there is, I think, a tendency to misunderstand Patanjali and this whole way of working with the mind. I think very particularly difficult to understand that sutra too, and that I know when I started, and I'd love to hear your experience, when I started on the path, I thought the goal is really to have the mind be just completely still. Shut up. I'm exactly. meditating. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You're bad news. I'm trying to meditate. Yeah. Exactly. Like, yeah. what the heck? Yeah, yeah. And then I, I mean, you stuck with it. I just abandoned ship. Okay. I'm like, there's, this is not happening, folks. Okay. I was the captain. I felt I had to stay on the ship. Yeah. <laughs> I felt I was on the Titanic. I was on my own personal Titanic. <laughs> okay. Well, every man for himself. <laughs> <laughs> you you stayed with it and i think you know you got into the other side you know you got into the other shore i had to circle around come back to it through buddhism and through mm-hmm. a different understanding where the idea isn't you sh- you know shut off the mind shut the mind up mm-hmm. not possible shut it down it's not possible (laughs) (laughs) if only no it doesn't in fact the buddhists have the complete opposite view of it Mm. don't shut it down the more i mean okay i'm being extreme here but (laughs) because there is a you know there is this practice of shamatha which is a stilling a calming but it's in service of part two that's part one They always say shamatha does not liberate. It will not take you to enlightenment. Only vipassana, or as today is known, vipassana, will do that because that's insight meditation. So the first part is it's true. It's like if you're in the middle of a complete traffic jam, you ain't getting anywhere. Mm -hmm. So the first thing is you do have to calm the mind to some extent, right? Mm -hmm. Stabilize the mind to some extent in order to sort of see what's going on. It's almost like you decide you want to organize your closet and you just take everything else in a big pile, you know, on the floor in front of you. Mm. And it's like, where's this? Where's I can't, it's all just a big mess. So Mm. you sort out, okay, here's the shirts and here's the pants and here's the, oh, and I don't need this anymore. That you get it to a basic order. Yeah. And yeah. then you can really look now, let me see what actually is here. Mm-hmm. So the Buddhists, what they do is they really work with the thoughts as what they call support for meditation. It's, it's like the more stuff that comes up in your meditation is not only sort of more grist for the mill, but it helps you to understand the 
fluid nature of reality, the fluidity of your thoughts, how things aren't so just concretized, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And yeah. you start to develop- the impermanent, the impermanent nature of everything, yeah. Yeah, and so you start to develop a different relationship to your mind mm -hmm. and its activities. And so it's a whole, it's really like a whole science of yeah. mind in, in a slightly different way than yoga. It's a different approach to the same issue. Yeah. They can be integrated. I really think they can be integrated beautifully. I, I do too. Yeah. I think that, you know, we just shut up is not a good relationship with the mind and it doesn't, I don't think it, it doesn't work. Yeah. So I need to have a different relationship with my mind and the thoughts that feels more comfortable. It feels that I'm not in an adversarial relationship that I have to win. So uh, for me, I, I like what you're saying that it, it has a lot to do with forming a healthier relationship with the mind and his thought patterns before the thoughts just begin to slow down and maybe even stop. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe that's the movement of the sattvic mm. quality. You're bringing in a more sattvic quality and relationship, right? A more mm, balanced I like relationship. That. Yeah. Sattvic relationship, not, not a rajasic or tamasic relationship. Right. Yeah. That's, that's beautiful, Prem. Yeah. You know, what's the point of doing that? So Patanjali tells us it's so that we can rest in our true nature. So why aren't we resting in our true nature? <laughs> you know, we're in trap. I think that I know I came into yoga. I'm not sure what, you know, why you came into yoga, but I know a lot of people come into yoga because they do feel like, well, they're suffering entrapped by the mind. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, okay. First of all, I thought I was my mind. So right. everything my mind was getting up to all the anxiety, depression, worry, obsession, whatever you want to say about it. I thought that's who I was. Right. Yeah. You're not trapped by the mind. You're trapped by who you are. Yeah. 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 I'm thinking on my body, mind. And so mm. I'm just, I'm trapped in this. I don't see a way out. Right. Yeah. It's pretty miserable. Yeah. You know, a lot of people do come, whether it's yoga or whatever the spiritual path is. I mean, that's, isn't that essentially what Buddha, you know, the four noble truths is all about. Yeah. You know, life is suffering. Okay. People think that's depressing, mm. but it's just, okay. But think about it. Life has so many opportunities for suffering mm -hmm. if you don't understand that there's something else going on right yeah. yeah and so he explained in a nutshell that the whole reason we suffer is because we are literally trapped in like patanjali says avidya ignorance asmita identification with a self that is not mm -hmm accurate so we identify with a body mind and ego none of those are who we are yeah. and so identifying wrongly leads to desire aversion fear anxiety endless suffering mm. and what patanjali is saying as buddha was saying there's actually a way out of that and patanjali is like that's why i'm systematizing yoga <laughs> yeah. here's the method follow this you're you're out of it right mm -hmm. buddha follow the buddha the dharma the sangha you're out of it you are free that's what we're looking for we're, we're looking for moksha freedom however you want to call it nirvana enlightenment mm -hmm. samadhi uh someone sent me this video i've been watching it the last two nights of uh 
Papa G. I'm not sure. Yeah, Papa but, G. Sure. Yeah, yeah um, he's this, he uh, he has a picture of uh, Ramana on the wall. So I he was a student of Sri Ramana. Ramana. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Incredibly devoted student mm -hmm. of Sri Ramana, and, and yeah, and apparently had his own awakening. Yeah, very quick and, awakening. And and the main point I'm getting, I'm about a half hour in this hour talk. It's an interview. He's emphasizing the fact that no, you you were never not not the self. There is no one. There is no delusion. It's hard for me to to grasp exactly those those yana yogis who who deny the fact that I'm in bondage. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, you feel invalidated, right? Like yeah. wait, what about me? <laughs> I'm suffering over here. Wait a second. Yeah. <laughs> and he says, no, that's not the true. Uh, it sure feels this way. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but but the great thing, I mean, even though that's what he said, Nisargadatta Maharaj, yeah, uh, Sri yeah. Ramana, you know, these more modern jnana yogis, right. uh, Advaitis, they that's what they were saying. But, they, you know, they also were compassionate for the human condition because they fortunately they just had these spontaneous awakenings, which most people say is because, you know, in past lives. Mm -hmm. They gained a lot of merit. They purged a lot of karma. So they came into life, heard or experienced one thing mm -hmm. and boom, awakening. Yeah. But the, what he's saying is absolutely true. You know, <laughs> I, I to, I'm 100% with you. Yeah. I'm completely in the same place. Like, stop telling me I'm enlightened. <laughs> <laughs> It's just making me depressed. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and then I realized, no, no, no. They're actually telling us the truth, which yeah. is what Gurudev was telling us also. And we yeah. just kept thinking, no, that can't possibly be. Or, yeah. no, wait, I haven't had the light show. Or, wait a second. No. I, I <laughs> <haven't>, <laughs> yeah, I haven't ascended into the whatever, yeah. you know, higher realms or yeah. whatever we thought was going to happen. You know, one of my teachers, Andrew Holacek, he wrote this book, The Power and the Pain. And it's all about that struggle and also understanding what is this thing all about? So he says, he said, you know, when you see a rainbow and how beautiful it is, but you never say to yourself, look at that rainbow. Oh, oh I got to get that and put it in my car and take it home with me. Mm. We know it's this beautiful display we appreciate it. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. But we know it's momentary. It's impermanent. Mm. And he said that the experience is that when you wake up, you wake up to the reality that that is what everything is. Everything's mm. rainbow. You're More a rainbow. Rainbows. I'm a rainbow. <laughs> it's all rainbow. Uh -huh. You're still in the same world. You still do what you do. You just see everything as a rainbow. Mm. I love it. No, no grasping. Don't, no need to grasp onto anything. No. And you can't. And you can't grasp anything anyway. You know, so because yeah. you know the true nature. Yeah. You know who you are. Yeah. You know you're nothing solid and permanent. That everything is changing and evolving. And thank goodness it is. I used to hate that idea of like, you know, they'd be like, celebrate groundlessness. No, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, and it's that, I love that quote from Chogyam Trungpa, the bad news is you're falling through space without a parachute. <laughs> the good news is there's no ground. <laughs>
<laughs> feeling, you know, that feeling of just like you're falling through space and there's, and you're going to hit the ground. That's what shifts. You know, there's no ground. The outer reality that you think of is so solid. And, you know, it's, it's really, it's what quantum physics is telling us. 98% of everything is space mm-hmm. in the subatomic world. 98% is just space. Yeah. Woo! Even the external world. Yeah. You, the space between the stars, is, it's, it's probably 98% is space. Yeah. And within us. Yeah, within us. The cells of our body, yeah. The atoms of our body, yeah. 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 So it's all like spaciousness. But what do we do? We get into suffering when we contract and think, this is it. I'm a solid person. I'm this ego. I'm this body. I'm this mind. I'm this ego. This world is my world. It exists like this. Nothing, you know, rigidity, solidity, all of that. And it's not about being spaced out. It's about woke in the truest sense of it. Yeah. But, you know, I think the fact that uh, I'm not going to hit ground, I'm falling and I'm not going to ground, that could also be a bit terrifying also. It I, is. I, that, that is it. That's why they said that when the Buddha gave these first teaching of impermanence and emptiness, hmm. 500 monks who were listening to him died of heart attacks hmm, on the spot. Right. Hmm. Because it's like so shocking. Mm. So you have to acclimatize. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I got an email today from someone I've been mentoring. He was saying, he's like 76 years old. He says, yeah, I'm getting older. I don't have a purpose. I'm kind of in a free fall and I'm really afraid. Mm. He's describing, you know, I'm glad he's coming in touch with that. You know, he's describing what you just said is that there's nothing to hold on to. And it's not even a solid ground I'm going to hit. Yeah. And, 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 and that's terrifying for this man. It, yeah. It's terrifying. If you don't have the ground of these teachings, it's mm-hmm. that's what suffering is. That's exactly what it is. And that's what these teachings are for. And and I think also there needs to be some like psychological stability that needs to be in place also to really digest this because it is, it's such a shift. It's such a shift in one's awareness, consciousness, pretty dramatic. I think that's, you know, that's why Arjuna has a panic attack. Yeah. At the beginning of the Gita that he starts to see what spiritual life really is. It's like too immense for him. It's too much for him. He wants to crawl back into the, what he knows, the boundaries he knows. He's like those 500 monks who had a heart attack. Yeah. 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 This is the beauty of these foundational texts. Mm -hmm. All of them bring you to the same, really the basic understanding that we're not our bodies. We're not our minds. We're not these little egoic selves we are this pure (laughs) awareness this cosmic consciousness in these you know little individual forms we're (laughs) all little sparks of that cosmic consciousness and and the more we identify with that and less with the egoic self is to the degree that we are going to suffer a lot less and it yeah. doesn't mean you drop out of life or you get all spaced out or, you know, things in the world don't matter. Everything matters in context and in, <laughs> in, in held in this understanding. Mm, and that's that, beautiful. 
And that everything you're doing is to be of service and help relieve suffering of others. So your whole motivation for being shifts. You have no other reason to live but to fulfill the destiny of the whole through you for the good of others. Yeah. 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 It's beautiful. Bodhisattvas, you know. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah. This is this is what it's all about. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think we solved the problems of the world. <laughs> I feel I feel much lighter. That's that was great, Pramanjali. Okay. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed the podcast and will join us again for next week's episode. Please do follow and subscribe to the podcast via SoundCloud, iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher. And for more information about everything Integral Yoga, you can go to IntegralYoga.org. Om Shanti.